0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people, more like Jesus, by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Friends, today I'm excited. I'm preaching a passage today that John Piper, a guy that uh, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's he's a really phenomenal Bible teacher from the Reformed tradition. He says it's one of the most confusing passages in the Gospels. Who's excited for that? So wherever you are today, whether you're online or in the room, would you join with me as we pray? Let's pray together. Gracious God. Lord, I know one thing, that when I woke up this morning, God, I I knew that we would need You today. Because without You, Father, without You, we're just a bunch of people gathering in a room without reason, without cause, or a bunch of people joining online without purpose. But because of You, God, you You make sense of Scripture. Your Holy Spirit guides us. You teach us. You bring to mind the teachings of Jesus that we might know what You're saying. So Lord, on our own, we are inadequate, but we have a God, Holy Spirit, I know you want to speak to us today. So would you whisper? Would you speak? Would we hear your voice with clarity in Jesus' name? Less of me and more of you we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. I was traveling the world uh, a couple of years ago uh, when I was a little younger than I am now, which is how I've learned I need need to reference my age. I can't say when I was a young man, because everyone laughs because they still think I'm young. But when I was younger than I am now, I traveled the world. I found myself in Changi Airport, uh, which is the Singaporean airport. And there was this moment, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where I found myself in line and I heard... The Australian twang come from the man in front of me. Now, you only really know this if you've travelled the world or travelled overseas. There's something so lovely when you hear that Australian accent for the first time. I once went to India on a mission trip when I was a kid. I remember the first time I walked onto the Qantas airline and the guy said, g'day mate, welcome to Qantas. I was wanted to kiss him. I was like, no, India, beautiful country. Nothing wrong with India. I love it. The Indian people, beautiful people. It's just, it's something like home, right? Like when you, feel, when you hear the native language from where you're from, you're like, ah, oh, this feels familiar. Anyway, so I hear this guy's accent and he hears I'm Australian. He goes, mate, where, where are you off to? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to Brazil. Not Brazil, Brisbane. I'm going to Brisbane. Very different from Brazil. I'm going to Brisbane. And he's like, oh, I'm off to Melbourne. And we started chatting. He said, mate, listen, I've been traveling the world for a couple of months. I haven't really had, had lunch with an Aussie for a bit. Do you have time for lunch? Could, could we grab a meal together? I'm like, sure. I'd love to grab a meal with you. He said, so, uh, well, listen, I'm flying first class. How about we go to the Qantas Club first class lounge? <laughs> I'm like, oh, if I have to. If I have to, man. And he said, "Well, hey, uh, well, here's my phone number. I just got to do something real quick, and I'll meet you there in 10 minutes. Give me a call when you're out the front." And he left off, and I was excited. Then it hit me: all the training from my young childhood, all the training that I'd gone undergone watching Liam Neeson in Taken. I realized that this guy was probably trying to kidnap me. And I'm like, hey, whoa, hang on a second. Who actually invites? And I get a bit scared. So I ring the modern Liam Neeson in my life, my father, and I text him and, and I'm like, Dad, this has just happened. You know, this, you know what if I'm actually going to be, you know, taken for the rest of my life? Will you come and get me? What's going to go on? And my father's like, Michael, I think you're overreacting. Just go have lunch in the first class lounge. I'm like, oh, okay, Dad says it's fine. So I went to first class lounge. I remember distinctly and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm excited. I'm I'm nervous. Uh, I've made sure I got life insurance, and I'm standing out the front. And I text the guy. I said, "Hey, mate, I'm just out the front," and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm nervous. My fingers are crossed. I'm like, "Oh, I, I think I think you stood me up." I don't think I'm going to the first class lounge. The guy at the first class lounge desk is wondering why I'm staring there, looking at him. I'm looking at him, wondering why he's looking at me. He probably has more of a reason to look at me than I have to look at him. And then out of the back, I see my knight in shining armour emerge. The man comes forward. I'm like, he's here. I'm eating steak for lunch, baby. And he comes out and he opens his mouth and says, Michael, oh, so great you're here. Uh, I've got some bad news. And I'm like, I knew it. You're kidnapping me. And he said, um, I actually just ran into my best mate from my childhood in the First Class Lounge and we wanted to do lunch together. I'm probably not gonna probably not gonna be able to do lunch with you. Is that okay? I'm like, yeah, it's fine, but whatever. And he goes, but i tell you what, um, hey, why don't you come in anyway and you could just, why don't you just come in as my guest? I won't be able to eat with you, but you could do whatever you like. Is that okay with you? Introvert by myself in a First Class Lounge. Is it okay with me? I'm like, this is the cross that I will carry today. So I walked inside and man, it was amazing. I don't know if you've ever been in there. If you have been in there, let's chat afterwards. If you haven't been in there, you and I, you can live vicariously through my own experience in there. You can order salmon. I ordered salmon, steaks. I would, you know, what I like clicked my fingers and someone would emerge out of the shadows. And I'm like, yes, you know, Rupert, go get me this. It was phenomenal. I had a great time. My world came crashing down when I hopped onto the cattle class of the plane that I was actually flying on. And I'm like, oh, you plebs, here I am amongst you all. And I sat down. But the reason why I say this there's, this, there's that moment, right, where I was sitting there and I don't know if you've ever had this and I'm standing there at the front of the first class lounge and I'm nervous. Why am I nervous? I have no guarantee that he's coming through those doors. i Am like crossing my fingers? Why? I don't know him. I don't know his character. I don't know if he follows through on his word. I just know he's an Aussie. Now that should say a lot for someone. But still, And the reason why I raise this is because I think that for some of us, when we pray to God, we pray a little like Michael standing outside the first class lounge. Fingers crossed, we're nervous. We've heard the promises of God. Ask anything in my name and it shall be done for you. You are my child. Cry Abba Father, I will listen to you. We've heard the promises of God, but we pray with this nervous, like fingers crossed kind of face, like, is it too good to be true? Will God actually listen? Will He actually rock up? And the problem with that is, friends, is I genuinely believe that is not the way God has called us to live. That is not faith. I don't think that that is the faith God wants for you. I don't think He wants you to have the fingers crossed kind of reality, wondering if God is actually going, as we were praying to some far off deity, thinking, God, can you hear me from down here? I hope you'll rock up. See, friends, God invites us to know His character, to know His integrity, to know His faithfulness. He wants to be not the man in the first class lounge. He wants to be the father in the story. Who did I text when I didn't know what to do? My dad. I had the dude's number. I could have texted him. Hey, are you legit or are you going to kidnap me? But I texted my dad, why? I know my dad. I trust my father. I know his character. That's the position God wants in your life. Friends, are you living a fingers-crossed kind of faith? Or do you have a belief in a faith in a God who follows through? I believe that's the faith God is calling the new life to have. He's calling you to have. It's the faith he called the disciples to have. But for some of us today, it's a faith that we remember, not one we live. I remember that faith. It's those guys that they always talk about youth ministry days. Have you ever met these guys? Back when we were in youth ministry, man, we used to do crazy stuff we would pray for people. (laughs) Man, it was wild. But now I know how to read the Bible. So things are a little bit more settled down for me now. Friends, I, I believe God's put a message on my heart for today where He wants to light a fire in us again. Where the days of our faith, the golden days are still in front of us and are still now. Maybe you're new to church one day today. Maybe you're new and you're joining us online. Maybe you don't have a faith I've got to tell you, the faith that Jesus Christ offers you is not a fingers crossed faith where you hope He might rock up. It's a faith that believes God can, God will, and God does. It's the faith that the disciples forgot in today's Scripture. If you want to turn with me with Matthew chapter 7. Now, um, if you want to go there, it'd be actually super helpful, mainly because Matthew chapter 17, sorry. Um, Two things. It's really important that we bring our Word of God to church with us. So if you're online, open up a tab. Get the Bible going. If you've got the Bible on your phone, please pull it out. I'm just letting you know, when I said that in the 8am service, I saw more more heads than I saw foreheads. So I don't know if we're all doing it right now, but the 8am I actually saw people pretend to go down and pull out their Bible. A lot of you have not broken gaze with me, which means you're really ambidextrous and able to grab a Bible or you haven't got your Bible out yet. The reason is is because there's something I want to show us in Scripture today. You'll need to read along with me because you won't see it on the screen. In Matthew chapter 17, we read these words. When they, the disciples and Jesus, came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now, context is so important. Part of the reason, if you're reading along with us in your word, you'll, you'll see the story above is really important. It's a story called the Transfiguration. The disciples and Jesus have come to a place called Mount Horeb. At the top of Mount Horeb, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, three disciples up with Him for kind of like a mini youth camp adventure with Him. And as He's up there, the transfiguration takes place. Jesus is praying and in a moment, His appearance is transformed. It's a supernatural moment. He shines with the glory of God. His divinity comes through and His appearance is changed, it says. And appearing next to Him is Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophet. I'm not going to explain to you scientifically how this is possible. I don't think that's the point here. It's a supernatural miracle. When Moses and Elijah rock up, signifying that the law and the prophets testify that Jesus is the Lord. And from heaven, a voice comes down and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, right? It's a tremendous moment. It's phenomenal. And on the back end of this moment, Peter, James and John and Jesus come down off the mountain. They come down from this supernaturally charged experience. They find that the other disciples have been busy. Whilst they've been waiting for this youth camp to get over, they actually have been busy seeking people to pray for. And they find a young man, a man with a son, comes and kneels before Jesus. And what does he say? Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on my son. He's had seizures that throw him into fire and into water. Your disciples tried to heal him, but they couldn't. Now, this story is one of the stories that appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. And it's because these are accounts, eyewitness accounts, that don't only use eyewitness testimonies, but also use written resources to pull together the biographies of Jesus. There are, not five, there, are not five, there are not five Gospels, there are not four Gospel biographies of Jesus' life because we forget and need repetition to remember. It's because each of those Gospels kind of have a different perspective of the same events. And when the three Gospels have the same story in it, we can look at all three of those stories to understand what's happening deeper. So we're going to jump between Matthew, Mark and Luke today. If we go to the book of Matthew, with the, to the book of Mark, this same story in Mark chapter nine, we find that this young boy has been seized and in violent moments, he foams at the mouth. He, th- th- something overcomes his body that makes him unable to function normally. In the book of Luke, we read that, that the father actually believes a spirit has actually come upon his son or a demon, it's demonic oppression or possession. Well, I was um, thinking of a title for today's sermon, we were preparing for with our pre-service meeting. They said, what are you preaching on today, Michael? I said, I'm talking about how to cast out demons and move mountains. Everyone laughed. Like, (laughs) But to be genuinely true today, we're talking about how to cast out demons. And some of you are going, I brought my friend for the first time. They may need to hear this today. Who knows? Turn to them and wink. They could be creepy. There's this moment, right, where what's happening here is that there is something going on. Now, I read that to you because sometimes when we read this story, in some translations, it's translated as my son has epilepsy. And what ends up happening is that the demon gets cast out, you know, long story short. And I read this to you to recognise that we can look at this and go two things. We say, number one, that epilepsy is always about demon possession. Or number two, they said it was demon possession because they weren't doctors back then. They were a primitive age and they didn't really understand. And both of those are incorrect. Both of those incorrect. The word for seizures in Matthew used is not the word for epilepsy. It's the word actually for moonstruck, which means that this, something was happening to this person that meant they were still or they were unable to operate functionally normally. In a modern day, the closest thing we have today is epilepsy. But in no way in the Bible does the Bible say epilepsy is a result of the demonic. And I need to be clear about that. And secondly, over here, we can be like, you know, we can have this chronological snobbery. We're like, well, they think it was the demons because they didn't have what we know in medicine. In the Gospels, it's so clear. There are times when Jesus heals people who were sick and no one goes, oh, that's demonic. No, they were sick. And there are other times when Jesus comes and He casts out demons, which means they're able to distinguish between when someone's physically ill and when someone's spiritually oppressed. So what we're dealing with today is not a case of us going out into the world when someone's got a physical ailment going, that's demonic. No, don't do that. But we're also not dealing with something where the the ancient world were hyper uh, vigilant and unmisunderstanding. misunderstanding No, there is something dark happening in this young boy's life. And what we read is the disciples are unable to confront it. They're unable to do anything about it. So the disciples, in many respects, have failed. Have you ever had a moment when you felt spiritually inept? Like someone maybe asked you to pray publicly and didn't go well or you chickened out. Or maybe a moment when when you were wanting to read the Bible or read the Bible in a, in, a, in a small group and something just shifted and you became extremely discouraged. Have you ever had a moment when you were hoping there would be an outcome spiritually that didn't end up happening the way you were thinking it would? I think we've all kind of been there. I referenced these people who talk about the glory days a lot. I think New Life is filled with people like this. People like, man, my last church, man, it was crazy. We would see people just delivered and prayed for people and yeah, it was full on. But we came to New Life because it's safe and we don't do weird things here. But man, you should have seen some of the stuff we saw God do back then. And we talk about a time and a season when it seemed like our faith was more alive and vibrant but now that we're more theological, we're tamer. That correlation doesn't fit in the kingdom of God. The more you know God, the more adventurous, the more radical, the more miraculous your life becomes, not less. And something happens in your life where I hear people, and maybe maybe you're new here today, you're like, that's not me, Michael. Then it's not you. But you would know, there are some of us here today who always talk about the most thriving season of God was in somewhere else. And I believe God's saying, I want to move here and I want to move through and I want to move amongst the people in your life. And there's this thing that happens where when Jesus looks at the disciples' inability in a moment to cast the demon out, what kind of partial care does Jesus offer? This is a sensitive time. The disciples have been shamed publicly. How does Jesus respond? Care and kindness does he offer? Let's read in the next part of Matthew chapter 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation, he says to them. Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Sometimes we have this cultural painting of Jesus, which says a lot about like Jesus was his kind, loving, caring person. He was kind. But he wasn't always nice. There are sometimes you read the Bible, I don't know about you, and Jesus says stuff and it like sucks the air out of the room. I mean, it, it, it kind of felt like it just did when I read those words. People are like, <gasps> Jesus, these are just meant Like, just be gentle. But Jesus is saying what he's saying because he knows something we don't know. Those words unbelieving, unbelieving makes sense, but but perverse, what does He mean by perverse? The Greek word perverse, it kind of means misshapen or crooked. It means that something's happened to His disciples that that they've fallen out of shape of the way that they were meant to be. The way that they've acted for some reason is just it's made the way of God crooked in their life. It's a bizarre way that Jesus references it. But what He's highlighting here to them is that this, this shouldn't have, you could have done this. This could have been you. And and it's something today which challenges me because I think not only, Jesus, do I feel like you're being harsh, but why are you being so full on to them? Because what this story is about, I don't actually think it's about demon possession nor healing. I think it's about spiritual authority. And for some reason, the disciple's spiritual authority has become crooked. Now when I say spiritual authority, if you're new to church, that won't make a lot of sense. If you've been in church for a while though, it's a term that sometimes we hear. And when someone has spiritual authority, you kind of know what it looks like in a room. It's like someone that seems to understand how something will work out spiritually and they are sure of the process and the outcome. When someone has the authority in a board meeting, it's usually the person that people trust, but it's also the person that understands process, understands outcomes, understands the intent and purpose of what's happening in the room. And so what Jesus seems to be highlighting here is, friends, there's a lack of spiritual authority in the disciples that is concerning to Him. And I don't think we talk about it much. We don't talk about our spiritual authority. We don't talk about the spiritual authority that is afforded to us as being followers of Jesus and sons and daughters of God. But I think it's what Jesus is trying to address today. How do you get spiritual authority? Have you ever wondered that? How do you become the person that actually chooses to pray for someone rather than take that person to the pastor? How do you become the person who, when they hear someone walking through sickness or darkness or hurt or pain, steps in and goes, I want to bring you before Jesus myself and pray. I want to step in and love. I want to step in declare. I want to cast out, raise up and heal because I believe I know who God is and what He wants to do in this situation. How do we get from being timid to bold? It's an important question for us because we have these section leaders, boy, they do a good job. We have these pastors, but here would I believe in the kingdom of God, everyone is called to play. Everyone is called to pray. Everyone is called to be a part of God's work in this world. So after He rebukes them, the disciples turn around to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus, the disciples, verse 19, came to Jesus and I asked Him, why couldn't we drive it out? They don't go, Jesus, you're being too harsh. It almost makes sense to them. They're like, Jesus, why couldn't we do this? Why? If you go back to Matthew chapter 10, the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 are commissioned by Jesus in pairs of two. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to send you out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come here. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. Jesus in His ministry gives the disciples spiritual authority. You are gonna go and you're gonna heal. You're gonna raise, you're gonna cleanse, and you're gonna cast out. And the disciples do. They actually see this stuff happen. They come back to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, the demons listen to us in your name. They're, they're doing what we say. This is, we just say in the name of Jesus and they obey. And they're, they're amazed. Seven chapters later, the disciples at the base of Mount Horeb are facing the exact same situation they've encountered many times before, but this time it doesn't work. This isn't an issue of like Jesus going, oh, I've got to teach you guys. He's already taught them. But something's fallen short. Something's changed. And I think it's the same thing that can change in us. Verse 20, Jesus tells them why they couldn't drive it out. Because you have so little faith, He says. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is confusing at best. And when you read it, you kind of get lost. And let me explain why. Because Jesus starts and He goes, let me tell you why you couldn't drive it out. You have so little faith. And then He turns around and goes, let me tell you what kind of faith you need. You need small faith. You're like, wait, what? I had little faith and I couldn't work. But now I have, if I have small faith, I can go reorganise Springbrook? What? That doesn't make sense. And and what we've got to recognise here is that if we think that what Jesus' commentary here with the words little faith is about the size of your faith, we miss it. The Greek word, I'm going to get it wrong. The Greek word is oligopistia. Oligopistia, little faith. But but the real helpful way that most commentators understand this is that Jesus isn't trying to comment on the quality of their faith. He's not, sorry, He's not going to comment on the size of their faith, but the quality of their faith. And so the problem with so many times, the way we talk about faith in the church is that we talk about faith very similarly to the way that a Star Wars franchise talk about the Force. Do we have any Star Wars fans in the room? Guys, there should have been more hands when I, when I asked that question. Like we're followers of Jesus and we've watched Star Wars, like synonymous stuff. And the reason why I say this is, is there's this moment, just this is for the nerds, where they're talking about young Anakin in episode one and they say his Metaklorian count is high. Some of you remember this and I'm just kind of impressing those who can. What they're meaning in the room is that he has a great ability to use the force. He can like make things float and levitate and mind read. It's amazing, right? They're saying he's strong with the force. And we talk about faith the same way they talk about the force. As if there's something innate in some of us. We're like, ooh, his faith levels are high. He can do some really crazy stuff. Not me though. My faith levels are really small. I can't do, I can't do cool stuff like that. Jesus doesn't seem to talk like that. He doesn't seem to walk around and be like, "Well, watch out for him. He can probably fly one day." But this person over here, uh, they might, you know, hopefully they can pray. Like that's not like how Jesus actually seems to dissect it. He's not talking about the size of faith matters, and we know this because he says, "Guys, faith as small as a mustard seed. If you look on the screen, let me show you what a mustard seed looks like. Faith as small as a mustard seed can move that. That's Mount Horeb where Jesus was standing at the bottom of. It's an object lesson. He's not actually trying to go, don't like where Mount Mourning is? Move it in my name, let's go. No, He's trying to highlight, guys, you think it's about size. Size is not what we're talking about here. Because faith for Jesus is not about the size of what we bring to the table. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, what does it say? Faith is being sure, of being confident in what we hope for and insurance of what we do not yet see. It doesn't say faith is a constipated ability of Christians just be like, oh, yes. That's how we treat it though. And we look weird in those moments. But what faith is, is faith by Hebrews 11 seems to have an object separate to ourselves that we're hoping on and sure of. Faith, friends, is not about what you bring to the table. Faith is about who you have faith in. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It is the size of the object of your faith that matters. Small faith in a big God changes the game. Faith, friends, is when we are more focused on the character of God than the limitations of man. Let me say this again. Faith is when we are more focused on the character of God than the limitations of man. But so many of us, when we talk about faith, we focus on our limitations, don't we? Oh, I couldn't because of. I would never. I can't. I used to. It's not faith. Faith is not the focus on us. And friends, here's the problem. We all have faith. Maybe you're an atheist in the room or online. Every one of us has faith. You drove in a car today that you don't understand how it works. That's faith. You sat on a seat that no one told you would hold up your weight. That's faith. We all have faith, but can the thing you have faith in truly save you? Can the thing you have faith in truly save you? And Jesus says to the disciples, guys, the problem was you had faith in the wrong thing. And how do we know this? Because what did the disciples bring to the table? Jesus, how come we couldn't drive it out? You go back to Matthew 10, you go back to when they talk about the coming back At every time they're like, Jesus, we drove out demons in Your Name. Their focus had shifted. One commentator actually likes to postulate, what was the conversation with the disciples at the bottom of Mount Horeb that led to this? And this is not scriptural. It's not even worthwhile us going, oh, this is truth. But it's a helpful analogy to think through where we get to sometimes in our life. Maybe Andrew's sitting there and he's like, hey, Judas, why do you think James, Peter and John got to go up there and not us? Then Judas is like, dude, I can tell you right now, it's because you chew really loudly. Like, Jesus doesn't like you that much. I can tell because I don't like you that much. And then and then someone over here, Philip's like, no, that's not it, Judas, because no one trusts you with money, man. That's why we're not up there. We're all here watching you. And they start to work out about why they don't get included in, in the youth camp trip up the top of the mountain. And then suddenly, whilst they're all doubting Jesus's affection and love for them, a guy comes on and goes, guys, can one of you heal my son? And they're like, can we heal your son? Guys, let's prove to Peter, James and John who the real heroes of this story is. Let's go heal the kids. Let's go heal this kid. And their focus comes from a place where insecurity. I only raise this, not because it actually happened, because I think it's sometimes where we get to. Faith becomes a proof of our val- validity, of our own relationship. Or we were like, let me show you about my faith rather than let me show you the one my faith is in. And I know this, we didn't talk about this at 8am, but real quickly, if you go into Luke chapter 9, straight after this story, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, hang on, we couldn't cast out the demon, but we just saw a bunch of people casting out demons in your name. Do you want us to go stop them? And Jesus says, no, because anyone that is for us is not against us. What's He saying? Guys, they got it. They were doing it in my name. You didn't. It's not about being a special part of a club that that means you've got faith. It's about knowing the power of who comes through. Acts chapter 19, a group of guys, then the sons of Sceva, they rock up and they start to try to cast out demons. And they go, I purge you in the name of Jesus, the guy who Paul talks about, to leave. And the demons like, you don't know Jesus. You only know the that Paul talks about Him, these demons rise up and they end up chasing the sons of Sceva out. Why? Because their faith was in an incantation or a saying. It wasn't in their knowledge and their intimacy and in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the thing, friends, that we bring to the table is not the size of our faith. I don't know about you, but I got doubt. Anyone got doubt in this room today? Every time I pray for someone, I got doubt. Every time I pray for a sermon, I go doubt. You know, I've tried to share with you. Please don't come up to after me after the sermon and be like, you didn't doubt it, Michael. It was great. That's God. I doubt myself every Sunday morning. But in the middle of my doubt, the question isn't not, do I have doubt? It's what am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? And I tell you right now, friends, it's not in me because I know how shaky it is. If it's me that is up here delivering something that might transform lives, it is in Jesus Christ. That is the faith that moves mountains. This is why Jesus goes on He says, so you want to know what it means to have faith. When when the disciples are wondering, well, how do we have faith? This is what Jesus says. Can you go to me in your Bibles before it comes up on the screen to verse 21? Hands up once you find verse 21 after verse 20. Now only some people put their hands up because most translations don't have a verse 21. It goes from verse 20 to verse 22. You want to know why? It's just, this is just trivia. It's actually not like a big spiritual revelation. Um, it's because most people who wrote Matthew believe that Matthew, the writers who put Matthew's uh, testimony together, stole verse 21 from Mark. And so they're like, it wasn't in the original text. So historians have removed it. But if we go to Mark chapter nine, we find out how Jesus finishes the story, which actually is the key to the problem. What does He say? He says this. He says this, it's so beautiful. This kind can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. And I get to the end of the story and I know about you, but I'm like, Jesus, I was hoping for something a lot cooler than prayer and fasting. Like I was hoping like this time can only be brought out by flame throwing and lots of shouting and dancing. It's like, yes. But He turns and He says this, and friends, it's the key to the whole text. It's the key to faith. It's the key to everything. Because you see, the thing that is the source of our faith is Jesus Christ. He's the object of our faith. He's the beginner of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the one we rely on. He's the one we hope in. He's the one that even in our doubts, He's strong enough to hold us through. So the question is, how do you build intimacy with Jesus Christ? How do you build intimacy with Jesus? It's the ultimate question. What the disciples had forgotten at the bottom of Mount Horeb was not that they should be on the top of the mountain and then they can come down and do great things for God, but that all they needed was intimacy with God and the forces of darkness would not stand against them. So Jesus goes, guys, you wanna know how this is cast out? It's prayer and fasting. Here's what He's not doing. Giving us a formula for manipulating God's will. That's not what this is. He's giving us practices to understand God's heart. Crucial. When we pray, what do we do? Well, when I come before God, what I often do is I bring my list of things and I think God wants that. He wants to know what's on our heart. But I was praying for you yesterday morning and um, I just sense God just, just whispered to me, "Michael, be quiet. Now, it doesn't sound like, you know, "Michael, be quiet. It's like a sense. It's like a sense that's like, you know, shut up. Also, God doesn't say shut up. That was a joke for those of you who are gonna be like, God would not say that. I get it. And I just still, I just set this sense of God. be like, Michael, I want to talk with you. With you. And here I am preaching and writing this message early in the morning yesterday. And I'm like talking about intimacy. And and God's like, Michael, do you get it? You're telling me what you want to happen in this sermon. Can I tell you, can I just share with you some of my heart? And I realise, friends, that I've even at times gotten this wrong. I guarantee you right now, can I tell you, if the devil can take our prayer life, can take our faith. Prayer is the crux of intimacy with God. Man once said that everyone who ceased to believe began by ceasing to pray. Why? Because prayer is the chief form of intimacy. That's why in my life, let me just confess, prayer is the hardest spiritual discipline I do. I really struggle with it. But I think I struggle with it because it's the greatest form of spiritual warfare to find time with Jesus, to know Him to be known by Him. Friends, you wanna see the Kingdom of God break out in our world? You wanna see God do miraculous things in your life? Can I ask you a question? Do you know Him? What's your prayer life like? What's the prayer rhythm of your family? Marriages, what's the prayer rhythm between you and your wife? Or you and your husband? Every time I hop in bed with Sarah, you know the last thing I wanna do is pray. I wanna sleep. I wanna read my Bible. I wanna just be silent. I hear this still form of whispers like spiritual warfare. Michael, pray. I believe that this church is going to struggle whilst we remain prayerless, and we're like, well, Michael, let's do more prayer meetings. We will struggle whilst we rely on the organisation to appoint times and places for people to gather rather than just recognise if you're a Christian, find a brother or sister in Christ and pray. If you're a Christian, wake up early and get on your knees and pray. If you're a Christian, if you followed Jesus, believe me, the most most intimidating thing we could do to the forces of darkness is be on our knees in prayer. Because prayer leads to intimacy and fasting. Every time someone mentions fasting in church, I'm like, Heresy. <laughs> Let's move on from this one. Why? Because no one enjoys not eating. No one really seriously thinks that that's a good idea to do for a long period of time that's not, you know, experiencing something themselves like this, that's probably not from God. Like, I say this because why do we fast? To fast is simply we take a step back from something the world or our flesh tells us we need to take a step into the things of God. We don't fast to move God's hand we fast to see God's hand moving. And for me, I've got to tell you, when was the last time we fasted? When was the last time you took a step back from something in our world? Because I believe God is waiting for a people. D.L. Moody said, this verse is the key to revival and renewal. And as long as we forget it, we will not see it. Why? Because intimacy is the key to spiritual authority. Intimacy. Is the key to spiritual authority. The start of this year, I took a step back from social media, Netflix, and streaming platforms. And I'm like, I'm only going to watch Netflix with my wife, you know, once a week. And the last like couple of um, couple of months, it's just been, you know, work's been tiring, stuff's been, you know, full as life is at times, right? And I've got two kids as well, uh, about to have a third in Jesus' name. Um, if you don't see me at conference, it's because the baby has come, so I'm not wagging. Uh, anyway. And, and there's just been moments, I've just been tired at the end of my day. I've been frustrated and I've just been sitting at my boys' doors as they're going to sleep. I'm like, I'll just watch some Netflix. I've just been discouraged at night. I'll be like, I'll just chuck on a TV show. I'm like, oh, but you know, tomorrow I'll continue my fast of the, throughout the year. I just remember God whispering to me and being like, Michael, do you not see where you're running in times of need? Do you not see where you depend upon when you're discouraged and tired? It's not me. It's Netflix. And I just think for some of us, we need to realise that we're wondering why we're not experiencing seeing the hands of God. The question I ask is this, where do you run? Where are you running? Where do you run? I wanna finish with this. The one verse I just sensed God just summarised today with, it doesn't really make a lot of exegetical sense other than I believe it's the Word of the Spirit for us today. Because it was His Word for me. See if the key to spiritual authority is intimacy, then God's calling us to come back to our first love and to new life. I believe God would say this today in Revelations chapter two verse four. It says this: "Yet I hold this against you." These are the words of John writing the words of Jesus to a church. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I had a burden on my heart as I hear this morning. I, was, I, I don't cry often, I'm not a crier. But I was just in tears for our church. I was in tears for me. Too many of us have stories from our youth ministry and we pretend like God's ministry through us is done. And I would challenge us, it's because we've lost our first love. Return and do the things you did at first. Is Christ your first love, friends? Is He what you long for? Is He who you seek? Is He who you're chasing after? Or is He who we just know how to sing songs about and look like we're worshipping, but our hearts are far from Him as we trust in everything else in this world to drive back the darkness and we're wondering why it's not working? Return to Your first love in the Name of Jesus. Would we be a people who seek intimacy with Him before anything else? Thanks again for listening to The New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.